the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Phil Cook. He's the co-author of The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. That's coming up later this hour. We'll also talk with Adam Michelle. He serves as senior policy analyst and fiscal Fiscal Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the massive omnibus budget bill that passed was passed out by the House uh, late last night or early this morning and then passed by the House earlier today. We'll bring you up to date on what's in it and uh, what's likely to happen in the Senate where it now rests. Well, there was breaking news just moments ago. President Trump announced via Twitter that Ambassador John Bolton will replace General H.R. McMaster as his national security advisor, effective April the 9th. I am pleased to announce that effective 4918 at Ambassador John Bolton will be my new national security advisor. I am very thankful for the service of General H.R. McMaster, who has done an outstanding job and will always remain my friend. There will be an official content uh, contact uh, handout on 4-9, the president tweeted. Well, the president's announcement comes after months of speculation over whether McMaster would resign or be fired from his post. But on Thursday evening, a White House official said that the president and McMaster mutually agreed that he would resign from his post. The two have been discussing this for some time, the official said, uh, noting that the uh, timeline was expedited as they both felt it was important to have a new team in place instead of constant speculation. A White House official said the decision was not related to any one moment or incident, but rather the result of ongoing conversations between the two. Bolton was um, rather has served as a, a contributor to Fox News. In fact, I heard him being interviewed earlier today. He probably knew at that time what none of us knew. After 34 years of service to our nation, I am requesting retirement from the U.S. Army effective this summer, after which I will leave public service. Throughout my career, Mr. McMaster wrote, it has been my greatest privilege uh, to serve alongside extraordinary service members and dedicated civilians. He added, I am thankful to President Donald J. Trump for the opportunity to serve him and our nation as National Security Advisor. I am grateful for the friendship and support of the members of the National Security Council who work together to provide the president with the best options to uh, protect and advance our national interests. Well, McMaster said he was especially proud to have served with National Security Council staff whom he said established a strong foundation for protecting the American people, promoting American prosperity, achieving peace through strength and advancing American influence. I know that these patriots will continue to serve our president and our nation with distinction. White House Chief of Staff John Kelly said McMaster is a fine American and military officer. He has served with distinction and honor throughout his career in the U.S. Army and as the National Security Advisor. Uh, Kelly went on to say that he brought and maintained discipline and energy to our vital interagency processes. He helped develop options for the president and ensure that those options were presented fully and fairly. A true soldier scholar, his impact on this country and uh, this government will be felt for years to come. 
Well, Bolton, who served as U.S. Permanent uh, Representative to the United Nations from 2005 to 2006 and as Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security from 2001 to 2005, will take over for McMaster next month. Uh, Nikki Haley, uh, the U.N. ambassador, wrote, Thank you to Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster for your service and loyalty to our country. Your selfless courage and leadership has inspired all of us. Most of all, thank you for your friendship. Uh, A White House uh, spokesperson uh, said that Bolton is one of the strongest voices and experts on the full range of national security issues and challenges facing the United States. McMaster's retirement comes just one week after the president fired Secretary of State Rex Tillerson on Twitter and after other high-profile administration departures. Earlier this month, Chief Economic Advisor Gary Cohn also resigned, as did the president's uh, lawyer representing him in the Russian collusion investigation. So it is not altogether surprising. The timing is unexpected, but um, the challenges that the national security team will be facing in the near term uh, makes uh, makes one wonder how quickly they can cohese as a as a group. And I, I suppose that happens with uh, very little uh, challenge. But um, for those of us who are standing on the outside looking in, it is uh, a bit puzzling how one puts together a team that can uh, work effectively in the days ahead with some so many national security challenges looming. Well, some of the lead stories today, there was a rush to pass uh, one huge spending bill, which did pass in the House. Congressional Republican leaders released the final version of that proposed $1.3 trillion spending bill uh, Wednesday evening, just two days before the deadline to avoid a partial government shutdown. The 2,230-page omnibus bill was made to public hours after House Speaker Paul Ryan dashed through a Washington snowstorm to meet with the president at the White House with concerns that the president's support for the package was wavering. Well, the White House later said the president backed the legislation, even as some conservative Republicans balked at the size of the spending increase. Um, leaders have said they um, hope to start voting as soon as Thursday, which they did. A stopgap measure may be needed to ensure federal offices remain open through midnight Friday when funding for the government expires, at least on the Senate side, since the House has now passed their version. Both sides of the aisle want to avoid a repeat of the shutdown in in, uh, January, rather, which came after lawmakers clashed over the state of the uh, Obama-era DACA program that gave protection to illegal immigrants brought to the country as children. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments, as well as have a conversation with uh, Adam Michelle, senior policy analyst on um, that omnibus bill, what's in it and what's not in it, which may be even more concerning. Meanwhile, in the Texas area, a recorded 25-minute confession to uh, his crimes has been uncovered, police say. Condit's motives for the attack remain unclear, however, and authorities said the recording was made on a phone, which was found in Condit's possession following his fatal uh, fateful confrontation with police on Wednesday. The 23-year-old described creating seven devices, including one he blew up during the uh, conflict with police. Uh, according to the Austin uh, Sheriff's uh, Chief, Brian Manley, at a news conference, in the recording, the suspect did not mention anything about terrorism, nor does he mention anything about hate, the police chief said. The message is rather uh, the outcry of a very challenged young man talking about challenging uh, challenges rather in his personal life. Police said all seven devices have been found, suggesting there was no further threat from Condit to people in the Austin, Texas area. However, he said community, uh, the community should still remain vigilant. 
Facebook CEO and co-founder Mark Zuckerberg, he apologized yesterday for the social media sites, uh, the giant's role in a research firm's questionable access to user data. He had previously referred to the scandal as the Cambridge Analytica situation, wherein the research firm was accused of accessing 50 million Facebook users profiled uh, improperly. In an interview with CNN Wednesday night, the Facebook co-founder called the controversy a major breach of trust, saying, I'm really sorry that this happened. We have a basic responsibility to protect people's data. In an earlier Facebook post, he wrote the uh, social media platform has uh, that same responsibility. And if we can't, uh, then we don't deserve to serve you, claiming that the company is working to make sure that doesn't happen again. And the um, dash cam video of that disturbing Uber accident that resulted in a fatality was released today showing the deadly crash of a self-driving Uber SUV in Arizona as the safety driver in the vehicle had her uh, head down. Two angles, interior and exterior camera footage, were released by the Temple Police Department. Officials didn't release the moment the pedestrian identified as 49-year-old Elaine Hertzberg was hit due to the graphic nature of the impact, but the video is available up to that point. Uh, the uh, police said that the moving vehicle was around 40 miles per hour in the Phoenix suburb at about 10 p.m. on Sunday, and while the Volvo was in the self-driving mode, um, the backup driver who could take control Control of the vehicle in the event of a malfunction or other issue was, as I mentioned a moment moment ago, looking down at the time. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later this hour, we'll talk with Phil Cook. He's the co-author of The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. Phil Cook joining us a bit later. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, longtime personal lawyer, said that Sessions is not the subject of a federal criminal investigation for allegedly perjuring himself during his confirmation hearing. The special counsel office has informed me that after interviewing the attorney general and conducting additional investigation, the attorney general is not under investigation for false statements or perjury in his confirmation hearing testimony and related written submissions to Congress. That's a quote from attorney Chuck Cooper in a statement. ABC News reported that former FBI director, Deputy Director Andrew McCabe had overseen the investigation into whether Sessions lacked candor when he testified before Congress about contacts with Russian operatives during the 2016 presidential campaign. Sources close to Sessions say that the attorney general had no idea he may have been under investigation for perjury when he fired McCabe last week. But they've now, or at least his attorney has now confirmed that no, that is not the case. Of course, that would need to be independently verified, but that's what's being said. Well, the House approved a bipartisan $1.3 trillion measure upping spending to the military, a host of domestic projects, including some limited funding for border security, but no legislative fix for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program or the wall, at least not the version that the president has been uh, promoting. The vote passed 256 to 167 in the House, despite objections from a number of conservative Republicans who are unhappy with the budget costs of the 2,232-page measure and because it was put out with so little time to be digested. You remember the Republicans were very critical of the Democrats when they did uh, did that very thing with Obamacare and with other budgets, and now the shoe is on the other foot, and somehow they can tolerate it when they happen to be in power. It goes back and forth, and this is part of what frustrates people about politics. Many conservatives also objected to the limited border funding, which they said would mostly limit 
uh, the limit the funding going to repairing an already existing barrier and limited to 2017 prototypes. The measure also did not defund sanctuary cities or Planned Parenthood. The bill funds sanctuary cities, funds Planned Parenthood, restricts Second Amendment liberties, and grows the government on a one point trillion dollar price tag on this legislation, which will lead to a trillion dollar deficit. That's a quote from Representative Jim Jordan. Republican out of Ohio. This may be the worst bill I have seen in my time in Congress and the worst bill our leadership has ever allowed to come to the floor. He added, begging the question, so what difference does it make? Which party is in power? Well, the measure seems likely to pass in the Senate, given its support from uh, Democrats, although it's unclear on the timing and whether the Senate will be able to process the bill by Friday night when the government will shut down, in quotes, of course. The White House gave uh, firm but limited support to the bill. The president grumbled that they had to uh, uh, waste money on Democrat giveaways on Twitter, but hailed the increases in military spending. Democrats, meanwhile, claimed victory in placing limits on immigration measures and the wall, particularly the nixing of the White House request to add more uh, detention beds and deportation officers. But they also expressed disappointment that a fix for DACA, which granted protection for illegal immigrants brought to the country as children, was not included. Democrats had blocked a spending bill in January over that issue, and there was an offering uh, that included DACA, which they rejected in this bill. The government had uh, temporarily shut down last time around. Both the White House and Democrats approved of a spending boost for infrastructure, as well as a $4.6 billion increase in funding to stop the opioid epidemic. Democratic leaders also uh, uh, pointed to spending increases on biomedical research and child care, as well as funding for infrastructure that could be used for a uh, gateway tunnel project between New York and New Jersey. This spending agreement brings the uh, era of austerity to an unceremonious end. That's a quote from Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, and you can almost hear the groan of fiscally conservative Republicans at the sound of it. This was at a press conference he held. Uh, So it's passed the House and is very likely going to pass the Senate as is. Well, it has uh, taken a little more than six months for the United States national debt to grow by a trillion dollars. A quick uh, uh, clip that has little precedent over the nation's recent history. Last week, the debt was had hit rather $21 trillion for the first time, rising from the $20 trillion market notched in September. The debt is uh, guaranteed to go higher with President uh, Trump having signed a debt-limited suspension in February, allowing unlimited borrowing through March of 2019. Economists expect wider deficits to result from a tax cut that the president signed in December. And while a trillion-dollar increase over roughly six months is isn't unprecedented. There was one in 2009 during the Great Recession and another in 2010. It's certainly fast. The national debt exceeded $20 trillion in September of 2017 after taking 20 months to add a trillion dollars. A debt limit that's been in place since March of 2015 was raised in March of 2017 and again in September of 2017. Farther back, however, such um, trillion dollar increases took longer. 43 months, for instance, 43 months as opposed to six months months near the end of Bill Clinton's first term. The first time the nation's uh, debt hit $1 trillion was in October of 1981 during the Reagan administration's first term. Looking ahead, analysts see the nation much deeper in debt. The Committee for a Responsible Budget projects trillion-dollar deficits returning permanently by next year and debt exceeding the size of the economy within a decade. As I mentioned earlier, John Dowd resigned today. He's President Trump's lead outside counsel in the Russia probe, 
with an internal dispute with other attorneys uh, on the legal team. Dowd has been at odds with the other attorneys over the possibility of Trump doing an interview with special counsel Robert Mueller. Uh, sources said he has uh, recently voiced strong opposition to the president doing an interview amid uh, Mu- uh, the, the Mueller pro. Trump has assembled his own outside team of lawyers, including Dowd, Ty Cobb, and Jay Sekulow. Earlier this week, Trump added former U.S. Attorney Joseph DiGenova uh, to his legal team and, according to sources, is expected to make more additions, including his wife, which was announced uh, earlier today. Mueller's been investigating Russia's interference in the 2016 election, as well as other issues involving President Trump and his advisors, rather. Trump has repeatedly said there was no collusion with Russia and has called the probe a witch hunt and called for its swift end. Um, That has not yet been the case. However, last weekend, Dowd released a statement calling on Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein to end the Russia probe. I pray that Acting Attorney General Rosenstein will follow the brilliant and courageous example of the FBI Office of Professional Responsibility and Attorney General Jeff Sessions and bring an end to alleged Russian collusion investigation manufactured by McCabe's boss, James Comey, based upon a fraudulent and corrupt dossier, Dowd said in a statement. But Trump's legal team pushed back against the notion the president would move uh, to fire Mueller. In response to media speculation and related questions being posed to the administration, the White House yet again confirms that the president is not considering or discussing the firing of special counsel Robert Mueller. So the uh, all eyes are poised on what will happen next. We know what's been said, but what will happen next is uh, continuing curiosity whether or not it's actually a relevant question at this point. Uh, Inside the White House, Trump is separately advised uh, by White House counsel Don McGahn. Trump has been uh, keeping up his attacks on Mueller and his uh, Russia probe. On Wednesday, he uh, promoted comments from former Harvard law professor Alan uh, Dershowitz that Mueller never should have been appointed in the first place. But that's a moot point at this point. He has been Appointed, He is engaging in investigation that is broadened far beyond the original question, and it is going to continue. As the administration has said, they have no intention of putting an end to it. 30 minutes after four o'clock. Up next, we'll talk with Phil Cook. He's the co-author of The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest and his co-author point out that 2,000 years ago, in a remarkably short period of time, Christianity became the world's most influential religion, a force in culture, politics, literature, science, philanthropy, and the arts. Its followers astonished the world. 2,000 years later, Christianity is declining on all fronts, no longer credible in most cultural debates or personal decisions. The way has lost its way. Well, in their new book, The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back, published by Worthy, media experts Phil Cook and Jonathan Bach, they take a hard look at an oft-bemoaned topic, the decline of Christianity. As committed Christians with backgrounds in marketing and filmmaking, they tackle the crisis with an enlightening and provocative perspective. Christians don't have PR problem, they say. They have a sales force problem. Christians have simply lost belief in their own product and are in full retreat because of self-inflicted wounds. By not being remotely committed as a community to the gospel we preach, Christians have damaged our own brand in the eyes of the public. The Way Back inspires and activates modern believers to relearn from their ancient brothers and sisters and astonish the world once more. Well, according to former CNN journalist Paula Zahn, filmmaker and media consultant Phil Cook, 
is rare. He's a working producer in Hollywood with a Ph.D. in theology. He's the author of One Big Thing, Discovering What You Were Born to Do and Unique telling your story in an age of brands and social media. He's appeared on NBC, MSNBC, CNBC, CNN, Fox News. You get the idea. And his work has been uh, pro-led in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, and so on. He's lectured at universities like Yale, University of California at Berkeley, UCLA, in addition to writing his blog at philcook.com. And by the way, that's cook with an E. Uh, He also blogs for Huffington Post and has been a contributor to Fast Company, Forbes.com, Wired.com and FoxNews.com. He's a member of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, as well as the Producers Guild of America. He joins us today to talk about the book he co-authored, and that book is titled The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. That's quite an introduction, Georgina. I really appreciate that. I'm exhausted just going through it. You actually (laughs) did it all. (laughs) Well, I'm kind of busy, so that works out really well for me. Um, You uh, and your co-author, whose name I I failed to mention, Jonathan Bach, uh, you're entertainment, marketing, and media experts. Uh, I guess the obvious question is, what compelled you to write a book about the decline of Christian influence, and is your perspective one of biblical history or marketing and uh, uh, and, uh, media? Or both. That's well, a great question. It's a great question. And we actually started out with media and marketing because that's our world. You know, for us, the answer to every problem is a marketing question. You know, your, your house is too small. No problem. Call it cozy. You know, there's a marketing <laughs> solution for everything. So we started with the idea that maybe this huge disconnect between the Christian community and the secular world out there is a marketing problem. We're not telling our story very well. And while that's part of the problem, the more we studied, the more we researched, we just discovered we're not, we're not really sharing the gospel. We're not selling this product well. It's a Salesforce problem, not really a marketing problem. Well, that's an interesting way uh, to put it. Now, if we've read the scriptures from start to finish, particularly the New Testament, we, we know that, and Jesus promised that we would face opposition and challenge and difficulty. We know that that increases over time. Is it just a matter of uh, perhaps the time we're living in has made the gospel seem less attractive, or, or should we really uh, assume some respect? responsibility for um, how, uh, how poorly the gospel is playing, if you will, uh, in, uh, in the 21st century. Well, it does seem like we're, we're, you know, in the primetime news on the evening talk shows, it seems like we're being ridiculed more than ever. We've, we've, I think we've actually gone through an era where Christians were ignored. Now we've gotten to one where we're openly ridiculed. And, uh, but when you really look at it closely, it's very much like Jesus' time. You know, during Jesus' time, the, the criticism, the hatred that he got wasn't from the people. It was from the leaders. It was the religious leaders or the political leaders of his day. But the people, I mean, I think there's like 11 references in the book of Mark alone about the size of the crowds that came out to hear Jesus. And I think even today, just normal, everyday people are hungry for the gospel. They're, they're at least curious about it, whereas most of the criticism and the ridicule we get is the media, it's politicians, it's people with loud voices, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the, it's the most people in the room. Well, you're absolutely right. That certainly is one of the problems facing the Christian community. From your vantage point, what do you see as the most urgent problems that are, that are facing modern Christianity? And I suppose we would have to put ourselves on that list somewhere? 
Yeah, you know, when we wrote this book, we started looking at the disconnect between the fruit of the Spirit. You know, the New Testament calls the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know the list. And we started thinking, what do non-Christians think when they think of Christians? Well, ideally, they should think of those kind of words, because that's the, that's the things that our life should reflect. But if you start talking to non-Christians, you get a lot of other words like hypocrites, phony, power-hungry. Uh, you get these judgmental kind of words. And so we started thinking, what's caused that disconnect? And we started looking back at the last 30 or 40 years, and I think your listeners would have to agree that there's not really one area in, in one social issue where we've moved the dial in a positive way in the last 30 or 40 years. It just hasn't happened. And so we started you know, thinking, what, what's the cause? And it, it made us go back and look at how we live our lives. So in a nutshell, we got the biggest researchers in the country, Pew, Gallup, uh, Barna, Lifeway, and we started asking them how Christians live their lives. And what we found was uh, honestly shocking. I mean, let me give you an example. We discovered that when it comes to Bible reading, we discovered that 40% of church-going Christians read the Bible rarely or never. Mm. Rarely or never. Then, then when it comes to church attendance, the bar is now so low that if you show up just 19 times a year, you're now considered a regular. Just 19 times a year. That's like three out of eight Sundays. You're now considered a regular. Uh, when it comes to prayer, we discovered that um, 63% of Christians believe prayer is essential. And we thought that was positive until we realized the flip side means that 37% of church-going Christians don't believe prayer is essential. And, of course, giving is even worse. It's pretty brutal. We found less than 10% of church-going Christians are actually giving 10%. So when you start looking at how we drop the ball in living the Christian life, you start seeing that all these terms non-believers use, like hypocrite and phony, they're exactly right. In that context, I have to say, to answer your question, the greatest threat to Christianity in 2018 may not be the rise of secularism or radical Islam or the gay community or Planned Parenthood. The greatest threat to American Christianity today is really American Christians because we're not living the life God's called us to live. Mm, I'm reminded of the scripture that says that the lukewarm, that God just wants to kind of vomit that out of, you know, that's there you go. That's very, yeah. very offensive. But you know what? I, it's much easier for me to point my finger at uh, high profile Christians who have failed. And I can say the reason there's a decline is because they didn't do that or he didn't do that. Or, you know, there's a political <laughs> answer so to that. Someone else. When what you're suggesting is that we as individual Christians, as the Christian community are not living up to the commitments we profess. And the world is very much aware that we've fallen short because we don't have the power so to muster up the kind of character that we're called to without the Holy Spirit working uh, in, in our lives. This is uh, quite an indictment. That's exactly right. And, and it's interesting that we have the nerve to get mad at the gay community or Planned Parenthood or other people for living the lifestyle they've chosen to live, when the truth is we're not living the lifestyle we're supposed to or called to live. We, we've, in the book, we talk about the fact that we've kind of become the fat guy in the gym that lectures everybody else about health. Um, that's no way to win somebody over. Mm. Well, we're going to take a quick break. This might be a good time as uh, each one of us sits and ponders for just a moment where we fit in what you've just described. Again, we're talking with Phil uh, Cook. The book is The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. I think lots of us reading the title might be satisfied to think that, again, the point, uh, the finger is going to be pointing outward when, in fact, pointing inward is probably a little more, uh, more accurate. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book, The Way Back. It inspires and activates modern believers to relearn from our ancient brothers and sisters and astonish the world once more. It's based on the pioneering ideas used by the early church to transform their culture. I guess obedience plays a role in that. The authors, Phil and Jonathan, lay out innovative ways uh, contemporary church can rekindle how Christians engage today's society. And they believe that rediscovering these ancient values will be the key that unlocks the ability to lovingly confound and convict an uninterested and hostile culture. One of the things that I especially appreciate about the book is uh, uh, that you make the point that we don't always have to feel uh, a certain passion or calling in order for us to be called to do something. Uh, In the book, you state that sometimes your great calling in life isn't a passion or a dream. Sometimes it's something you hate or something that drives you crazy. Um, Does this apply to either of you? I'm thinking about obedience in general and just living the Christian life. It doesn't always have to be, be preceded by this feeling that, yes, I have a passion to do this particular thing. That's so true. I had a pastor one time say, sometimes your, minis- your misery is your ministry. Uh, you know, it's not always seeing something good in the world or being a part of something great. It's seeing something we really think is wrong, something we hate. Uh, maybe it's hunger. Maybe it's poverty. Sometimes something that, you know, you hate in life is something that you're called to do. And so sometimes that can be have the greatest impact there could possibly be. And in many ways, it's why we chose the early church when we were looking at how could we impact the culture today? You know, it's interesting. Politics hasn't really worked. Boycotts hasn't worked. What we call anger strategies hasn't really worked. You don't change somebody's heart because you get mad at them. And we discovered what, you know, we were looking at what does. And we went back 2,000 years, and you mentioned the early church. And what we discovered is they were hunted. They were persecuted. uh, They couldn't pass laws. They couldn't protest anything but they could act. And so there were many areas in life in the Roman Empire, like infanticide. And the, the Romans had no regard for life whatsoever. Kind of sounds like our culture today. But it went so far with the Romans that if a child was born they didn't want, they would take it outside the city, just abandon it, and they called it an infanticide. They would just let it die, let it be abandoned. And the Christians knew this was wrong, but they couldn't pass the law or complain. So they would go out under cover of darkness and take in these abandoned infants, newborns, bring them into their home, raise them as their own. And other members of the Christian community would, would you know, pay, would, would give them money to help support raising this child. And the Romans had no concept for why anybody would do that. They were so shocked and baffled by this. And there were other areas from the plague, you know, when the plague would hit during the Roman Empire, the Romans couldn't get out of town fast enough, but Christians would go to the heart of the plague to minister to people they didn't even know. And all these kind of acts after a while forced the Romans to rethink who these Christians were and who is this God they served. And historians today will tell us that was a great reason, a, a really significant reason, that the Roman Empire finally turned and Christianity became the dominant religious force in the Western world. So it led us to think, what are those things we could do today? We tried boycotts. We tried anger strategies. You know, if you don't say Merry Christmas, we won't buy your coffee. Well, that really hadn't done anything for the gospel. And if boycotts work, why don't missionaries do it? You know, let's go to a third world country, surround tribe, hold up signs, criticize them. Yeah, that's not going to really win them to Christ. So what are the things we could do? And we, we started talking about what are the things we could do as a culture today that would so stun and amaze and baffle this culture that would force them to rethink who we are and who is this God we serve. And that's the ultimate goal of the book. Yeah. In the way back, you draw our attention to Galatians when Paul lays out the fruit of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit. Um, how are we doing in terms of 
of uh, bearing that kind of fruit that may, in fact, astonish our culture? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't help when we're criticizing other people. It doesn't help when we get mad at Hollywood or we get mad at the gay community. And the truth is, I totally get it. I totally understand. I mean, everybody listening knows that Christianity is virtually disappearing from our culture. Uh, we're, we're being ridiculed. The culture seems to be getting more hostile. And so I understand why people respond with anger and frustration. But the truth is, that doesn't bring anybody into the kingdom. I think Jesus knew that it was the, the fruit of the Spirit that really brings that. That's what drew people to Jesus is what drew people to Paul and Peter. I think when we understand that when we have a heart of service and humility, that piques people's interest. And when we serve, that gets people's attention. And that's ultimately what's going to lead to change. As Christians, um, the hole we've dug ourselves uh, seems uh, overwhelming, almost insurmountable. Is it possible for us uh, to see a, a change if we uh, defy the statistics that you quoted earlier about church attendance and Bible reading and praying and essentially living living the basic Christian life as a follower of Jesus in obedience? Yeah, you know, it's funny, Georgine. Some people think uh, I have the spiritual gift of discouragement, uh, but, <laughs> but there's, there's actually hope out there. I mean, if the Roman, if, if the early church could turn it around, who was being hardcore persecuted and hunted down and killed, if they could turn it around, with all of our resources and influence and financial support, what could we do? So I think it's just a matter of saying, how do we get serious? How do we get committed? One thing we discovered in studying the early church, they were in 100%. You know, today, we I'll give you a great example. When they accepted Christ, let me tell you, it was like signing your death warrant. Because at that time, they knew when they made that decision for Christ— it would radically change their future forever. Well, today we've kind of dumbed it down to just accepting Christ, which is sounds like we're kind of signed for a FedEx package or something. You know, we don't understand it's that holy moment of commitment where everything in our life completely changes. And so we've taken this easy way out, and I think we're not going to impact the world until they see just how committed we really are. Now, as I mentioned earlier in your introduction, you are part of the entertainment world. Marketing is a a part of what you do. What are some of the challenges and, quite frankly, triumphs that you have experienced and encountered with your faith uh, while being in an industry that many uh, in the church consider pretty hostile? You're exactly right. And what's interesting, that's a great that's a great question, because what's interesting is very often I've discovered I've been in high level meetings with studio executives or or movie executives or producers or television executives. And at the end of the meeting, I, 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 I often will say, would you mind if I just prayed for you? Would you mind? And you wouldn't believe it. But almost every case they say, absolutely. We'd love that. And so what we find is there are people out there that certainly don't know anything about Christianity. They weren't raised Christian. They don't really maybe care for Christians. But the truth is everybody loves to be prayed for. And they, if you reach out to them, it's amazing how many will accept that. So I think, you know, when, when people criticize and boycott the entertainment industry or Hollywood, it doesn't help because there are thousands of dedicated Christians trying to make real change from the inside in the industry. And I, I just encourage people, stop thinking of Hollywood as the enemy and start thinking of Hollywood as a mission field. Mm. What if we started sending missionaries to Hollywood? What if we started praying for Hollywood? I think God would really honor that and see change happen. Well, I think we may know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it. When people finish mm. reading uh, The Way Back, and I hope they will read it, how Christians blew our credibility and how we get it back, what do you hope they walk away with? What message do you ultimately want us to uh, to take with us? 
I want us to go from an idea of anger strategies, from getting mad because things aren't going our way, to start thinking in terms of what could we do today that would so astonish people, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. Um, how could our church impact our community in such a powerful way that it would force people to rethink, wait a second, these Christians aren't these weirdos or these bad people that I thought about. These guys are remarkable. They're doing amazing things. And it doesn't, it, it's not that difficult to, I read a statistic the other day that said it's staggering the number of people in this country that don't even know their neighbor's name. You know, uh, people talk about wanting to be a missionary. Well, that's great. How about go next door? Let's see what we could do just reaching out to the guy next door, the guy in your office. What can we do to serve them that would make them maybe suddenly rethink who this Christian guy is? And maybe I should give this a try. It would change their perception completely. Well, it sounds like what you're describing is a way to turn the world upside down. Yeah, you're you know what, it's so simple. It's it's just a, it's it's Christianity 101. It's not a radical new idea. It's something that's been working for 2000 years, but it seems like in the last 30 or 40, largely because change has happened so quickly in our culture, we've just forgotten the idea of service, of humility, of reaching out to change people's lives. If we could do that again, it would be remarkable. Mm, wouldn't it though? The book once again is titled The Way Back: How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. It's published by Worthy. My guest Phil Cook and his co-author Jonathan Bach. Thank you so much for the book and thanks for talking with Thank us today. You. Appreciate it very I much. Had a great time. Thank you. <laughs> Have a good night. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, we're going to talk with Adam Michelle. He serves as senior policy analyst in fiscal affairs at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the omnibus uh, budget bill that passed the House, is now over at the Senate. Um, what he's suggesting, and I think he might be right, that it turns its back on the American people in some significant ways. We'll see how and if that's correct after the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, six minutes after five o'clock. Well, last night, late last night, the House of Representatives released its 2,232-page omnibus spending bill. This morning, the House approved that bipartisan $1.3 trillion measure, upping spending to the military and a host of domestic projects as well, including some limited funding for border security, but not uh, no legislative fix for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA program and much, much more. My next guest joins us to talk about what's in it, what's not in it, and uh, what it's going to cost us long term. Adam Michelle serves as senior policy analyst in fiscal affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Now, 2,232 pages. They were released late last night or early this morning, and the vote in the House took place today. First of all, we may not know what's in uh, this omnibus bill, but do members of the House and the Senate that may have a few minutes more to look at it, do they actually know what's in it? I don't think anyone really knows everything that's in this behemoth. As you said, over 2,000 pages long, analysts at Heritage have been pouring through it. Uh, all day. We just put out uh, a summary of some of the, the high points, but the, with legislation this complex, having such a little time to actually see what's in it is really just is, is the epitome of how broken the budget process is in Washington. One of your colleagues wrote that the omnibus spending bill unveiled this evening is an embarrassing rundown of broken promises and leaves zero doubt that Congress has turned its back on its commitments to the American people. Uh, let's talk about ways in which that may be true. So I think the the biggest broken promise is that they would 
the, the, the Republican-controlled House, Senate, and presidency would constrain the growth of government, not, not even cut it from, from, from what, we, what it would be projected to grow, but just reduce the growth rate. It, it doesn't even do that. It busts through budget caps that, that, uh, that even though Obama administration was at least respectful of, uh, it, it, it increases spending across the board, and it, it undermines the most sig- uh, significant legislative accomplishment, and that is tax reform. The, the more we spend, the more in debt we are, the less likely it is that those, that those tax cuts are going to last. People's taxes eventually have to go back up to pay for all the spending. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, was quoted as saying at a press conference, this spending agreement brings the era of austerity to an unceremonious end. True statement? <laughs> Yeah, that's sadly, this is this is just uh, a return to to Washington as usual. Uh, usual, the swamp is is alive and well. Uh, there's special projects for for uh, for special interests all over the, this bill, and and we haven't even gotten to the bottom of it. My understanding is that uh, Congress, of course, is pledged to break Washington's spending addiction, didn't do that, uh, to defund Planned Parenthood, didn't do that, to restore regular order to the budgeting process, didn't do that, secure the border, didn't do that, just maintain what we've already got, end the failed Obamacare experiment once and for all, didn't do that. Uh, So what does this monstrosity actually do? So what it does is it uh, it funds the government for for the rest of the, their fiscal year. It it, uh, it provides much needed uh, national uh, defense um, money, but that should have been done independently. We didn't need to also spend fifty three billion dollars above what was already projected for for the rest of non defense spending. We didn't uh, we didn't need to push this through in in under twenty four hours. We didn't need to earmark. $540 million for special tunnel projects in New York and New Jersey. All, all of these things get wrapped up in these, these must-pass bills, just makes for poor governance. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is a 2,200-page document largely crafted behind closed doors by a handful of congressional power brokers, four to be precise, providing an insufficient amount of time for thorough debate and constructive amendment. And uh, we're going to live with this for the next, what, 12 months. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's the the, the good. The, that's the positive projection. That really, what this does is it, it follows through on a deal made a couple of months ago to bust the, the caps that were on spending across the board, and it busts them for two years. So it's not just this year, but it's the entire next fiscal year, um, starting in October. That that basically means that we're not going to see a budget for for a year and a half, and that's problematic if you're excited about uh, welfare reform or a second uh, crack at, at tax reform. Any any of these things require a budget to move them, and, and this basically makes those uh, those processes harder. Speaker Ryan said no bill of this size is perfect, but this legislation addresses important priorities and makes us stronger at home and abroad. I suppose he's referring to the increase in military spending, but I think part of the problem is in his first comment, no bill this size is perfect. Part of the problem is it's its size and the fact that it, it's um, pushed to the last minute and the kind of deliberative process that I think most of us expect lawmakers uh, to engage in is simply not the case. Yeah, and I think that, that, that the fact that this makes us both stronger home and abroad is, is maybe true in the sense that 
more money is, is going to, to the military and to, and to protect our freedoms here, but is, is really not true in the fact that it adds to the debt and the deficit, which, which is a, a mounting concern for, for us internationally. It makes us reliant on, on other people to fund our government activities. It makes, and it makes us unstable economically. The more we add to the debt and deficit uh, year after year after year, at some point that bill has to come, come due and that, that will undermine our, our resolve here at home. Well, um, what is the uh, prospect in the Senate? Obviously, the clock is ticking and they're more likely to act uh, given that fact. But uh, are we expecting the Senate to sign off on this and this uh, whole thing to be done or uh, a continuing resolution? What do you think? It looks like the Senate is, is going to move forward just like the House did. Uh, I believe they're, they're debating it right now. Um, I don't foresee anyone uh, it not being able to get through there, but one can only hope. I mean, it's something this this monstros this this monstrosity could uh um i mean the senate could could stop this and they could have to pass a continuing resolution keep funding levels where they are and actually debate what's in this thing i think that would be a, a better path forward all right well we'll continue to watch what happens as the clock ticks and they're likely to um act uh, based on that fact. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, thanks for having Appreciate me Appreciate it very much. Again, Adam Michelle serves as Senior Policy Analyst in Fiscal Affairs at the Heritage Foundation, talking about the omnibus uh, budget bill passed in the House, well, released by the House early this morning, passed by the House uh, earlier today, and now passed over to the Senate. We'll see what happens next. We're going to continue to take a look at some of the news uh, from the day as we return from a break in just a moment. For example, the president slapped China with about $60 billion in tariffs. This is the first of many President Trump targets, China with about $60 billion. Um, and uh, the administration says the trade practices involving uh, stealing American companies' intellectual property, that will be next. And China has uh, recently argued that it shouldn't be punished if it doesn't want to buy what the U.S. is selling. So we'll get into that uh, as well. Also, the uh, state and local income sales and property taxes all hit records in 2017. We'll tell you more about that. And according to the uh, facts and figures from the Tax Foundation, the top 10 percent of taxpayers paid 71 percent of all taxes, federal income taxes. The bottom 50 percent paid 2.8 percent. We'll share more. Uh, with you about that. And Victor Davis Hansen points out that uh, North Korea has befuddled the United States and its Asian allies ever since the North Korean leader Kim Il-sung launched the invasion of South Korea in June of 1950 and warns that we shouldn't misjudge North Korea today based on that history. That and more when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump signed an executive memorandum today that would impose about $60 billion in retaliatory tariffs on Chinese imports. This is the first of many trade actions, the president said while he signed the memo. The new measures are designed to penalize China for trade practices that the Trump administration say involve stealing American companies' intellectual property. They'll primarily target certain products in the technology sector, where 
where China holds an advantage over the U.S. Well, the new measure follows a so-called 301 investigation led by U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer into China's potentially unfair trade practices with the U.S. Lighthizer's office will publish a list of targeted products in 15 days, and there will be a 30-day period for public comment, according to senior administration officials. The U.S. Trade Representative's yet-to-be-released report covers 1,300 product lines, the administration says. The bottom line, said Trump's trade director, Peter Navarro, on Thursday, is that the United States is strategically defending itself against economic aggression. The president is standing up for American corporations, he added. Well, Lighthizer told lawmakers, however, that China is likely to retaliate against tariffs by targeting U.S. agriculture products that are reliant on Chinese export market. The Trump administration had previously signaled that the tariffs would apply to at least $30 billion in Chinese imports. Multiple news outlets reported Trump himself has pushed for $60 billion in tariffs on Chinese goods. In the Senate Finance Committee today, before Trump's announcement, Lighthizer outlined the Chinese project uh, products rather that will be subject to the new tariffs, including aeronautics, modern rail, new energy, vehicles, and high-tech products. A worker... Um, monitors the loading of shipping containers at the new container uh, at the new container port uh, will monitor its impact. Trump will consider further actions against China in two weeks based on the effects of the first phase of the tariffs. Uh, CNBC reported Wednesday, citing sources. The president is uh, reportedly concerned about the severity of the new measures impact on American universities. Well, one of the problems with tariffs um, has been that we've uh, imposed them before. They haven't necessarily worked to the favor of U.S. industry. And some would argue that uh, tariffs in place played a significant role in the uh, the Great uh, Depression more than the, the markets falling. And it's difficult to reverse oneself once this is put into place. So Trump has many critics on both sides of the political uh, aisle on uh, on these imposed tariffs. Meanwhile, U.S. stocks uh, suffered a heavy loss today amid a day of sharp volatility after the president unveiled his uh, tariffs on China. At the same time, he's dealing with the... Uh, uh, department uh, of uh, the department chief's legal eagle, John Dowd. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost more than 700 points, slipping. Uh, the the S and P uh, dropped about 68 points. The Nasdaq about 178. Well, state and local governments collected a record $404,509,000,000 in individual income taxes in 2017, according to the Census Bureau. Before 2017, the greatest level of individual income tax revenues collected by state and local government occurred in 2015, when those governments collected uh, significantly less in individual income taxes. State and local governments also collected a record uh, amount of, uh, of money revenue in general sales and gross receipts taxes in 2017. Prior to that, uh, 2015 was the highest mark. At the same time, state and local government collected a record amount in property taxes in 2017 as well. Per capita, state and local income taxes peaked in 2015 at approximately $1,246. And per capita, state and local government, or rather general sales and gross receipts taxes, peaked in 2006 at about 1214 The Census Bureau defines general sales and gross receipts taxes as taxes that are applicable with only specific uh, and specified exceptions to all types of goods and services or all gross income, taxes that are targeted at specific items such as alcohol, beverages, amusement, insurance, and so on, uh, are not uh, counted in this particular number. Meanwhile, according to the Facts and Figures report from the Tax Foundation, 
Americans in the top 10 percent of income uh, earners uh, paid 70.6 percent of uh, federal income taxes and people in the bottom 50 percent of income earners paid 2.8 percent of federal income taxes. This was for calendar year 2015, the latest uh, with complete data available. The data show that uh, all taxpayers in 2015 uh, paid in federal income taxes uh, a significant, uh, a significantly low percentage. The top five percent paid the vast majority. The top ten percent is again at seventy one percent. The top fifty percent uh, of income tax earners only paid about two point eight percent. For contrast, the bottom fifty percent of income earners uh, paid significantly less, or uh, a little over forty one billion dollars. That amount uh, to amounts rather to two point eight percent of the federal income tax. Taxes collected. The top 1% of income tax earners, or income earners rather, paid the highest average income at about 27.1%. The bottom 50% at about 3.6%, to just get a little perspective. Well, Victor Davis Hansen, writing for the Patriot Post, points out that North Korea has befuddled the United States and its Asian allies ever since North Korean leader Kim Il-sung launched the invasion of South Korea in June of 1950. Prior to that attack, the United States had sent um, inadvertent signals that it likely would not protect South Korea in the event of an unexpected invasion from the North. Not surprisingly, a war soon followed. It's a war few Americans really know or understand today. General Douglas MacArthur, after leading a brilliant landing in Incheon in September of 1950, chased the communists back north to the 38th parallel. In hot pursuit, MacArthur gambled that the Chinese would not invade as he sought to conquer all of North Korea and unite the peninsula. As MacArthur barreled northward to the Chinese border during the fall of 1950, the landscape widened, American supply lines lengthened, MacArthur's forces thinned, the weather worsened, the days shortened. Conventional wisdom had been that the Chinese would not invade given America's near nuclear monopoly and likely air superiority. But in November of 1950, what eventually would become nearly a million man Chinese army did just that, pouring southward into the Korean peninsula. The Chinese and North Koreans pushed the Americans and the United Nations forces past the demilitarized zone at the 38th parallel. In January of the following year, 51, the communists retook Seoul after forcing the longest American military retreat in U.S. history. With the arrival of military genius General Matthew Ridgway, the U.S. regrouped. In early 1951, Western troops retook Seoul and drove communist forces back across the 38th parallel. But despite continued success, Western forces chose not to reinvade the North and reunite the country. What followed, the 1953 armistice that ended the Korean War, was a tense Cold War standoff between two antithetical Korean countries for the next 65 years. North Korean assassinations, kidnappings, uh, continual provocations continued throughout the peace, in quotes. In 1994, the Bill Clinton administration gave massive aid to North Korea under the agreed framework deal, including heavy fuel oil. In exchange, North Korea promised to cease its ongoing nuclear proliferation. Predictably, North Korea leadership lied. It eagerly took the aid only to further fast track its nuclear weapons program. The George W. Bush administration in 2003 arranged for a six-party talks. China, Japan, North Korea, Russia, South Korea, and the U.S. to discourage North Korean nuclear proliferation. America and its allies once more provided aid and promised not to attack the Kim Jong-il regime. In exchange, Pyongyang agreed in writing to dismantle all nuclear weapons and existing nuclear programs. 
once more. North Korea outsmarted Western uh, NAFES. It's in, it interpreted American concessions as weakness to be exploited rather than magnanimity to be uh, reciprocated. In 2006, North Korea detonated a nuclear device. The Barack Obama administration, learning nothing from the failures of the Clinton and Bush administrations, it followed the same old tired script of lecturing North Korea about its violations of international law, then predictably gave more aid to North Korea while pleading that it change its behavior and denuclearize. Obama's policy was called strategic patience, a hope that if North Korea would be would not compromise, it at least would eventually collapse due to its corruption and malfeasance. President Obama misjudged North Korea, as every other president has uh, had since the end of the Korean War. North Korea only further expanded its nuclear arsenal. Pyongyang always figured it could uh, feign one of its crazy moods and then play on Western empathy for more money. Uh, All the while, China smiled and claimed ignorance. Soon after Donald Trump was elected, North Korea announced that it was now capable of using its nuclear weaponry to take um, to take out cities on the U.S. Uh, West Coast. But this time around, the U.S. did not offer bribes. Instead, it issued its own threats to North Korea. Trump himself assumed the unhinged role of Kim's usually uh, that he played, denigrating Kim Jong-un as the little rocket man and short and fat. And well, you know the rest. But the Trump administration also lined up an international boycott of North Korea that is slowly squeezing the regime. Now Kim Jong-un suddenly wants to talk. A collapsing North Korea once again claims it will denuclearize, but first it wants an historic photo op with the U.S. president. What have we learned about North Korea in the past 65 years? North Korea's cunning usually uh, trumps America's ideals of fair play and self-confidence. Empty threats do not work. Appeasement with infusions of food, cash and fuel make things worse. China finds its North Korean client useful. Russia is usually against anything we are for. South Korea appeases North Korea when it senses U.S. weakness. It stands firm only when America does um, does demonstrate strength. So what should Trump do after seven decades of North Korean aggression? Ratchet up the embargo of North Korea? Do not give it uh, any aid, no matter what the pleas and threats. Put more pressure on China. Uh, the the challenge is not to barter with Pyongyang until it's proven that it has uh, no more nukes. And that's not likely to happen, particularly with the challenges of leadership, the national security team uh, that the White House has assembled, reassembled. And who knows between now and then, with the promise of meetings by May, uh, what that um, that team may, in fact, consist of 31 minutes after five we'll be back you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq 36 minutes after five o'clock you're listening to the georgine rice show well the house on wednesday passed legislation aimed at giving seriously ill patients increased access rather to investigational drugs it's a bill that was championed by vice president mike pence in part because of an indianapolis uh, eight-year-old um, with a muscular dystrophy uh, disorder. The House voted 267 to 149 for the right to try bill, named partly for uh, Jordan McClinn, whose frequent trips to Washington to advocate for the bill have inspired him to want to be a president one day. Uh, this bill uh, allows Jordan to have those big dreams, said Representative Susan Brooks out of Indiana, and it will be providing uh, patients across the country with big dreams. But opponents said the bill undermines the Food and Drug Administration's existing compassionate use program while giving false hope to dying patients. If this is such a patient-centered bill, then why does every major patient-centered group oppose it? Representative Frank Pallone 
asks. Patient groups also oppose a slightly different uh, uh, legislation co-authored by Indiana Senator Joe Donnelly that uh, unanimously passed the Senate last year. I look forward to getting this across the finish line as soon as possible, Donnelly said in a statement. But it's not clear if lawmakers will resolve the differences and pass the final version of the bill this year. The House bill would let patients who are near death or who have a disease that is likely to lead to severely premature death potentially access drugs that have gone through only preliminary testing on humans. They would have to be uh, ineligible for a clinical trial and have already tried other available treatments. If I were faced with one of these heart-rending situations, I would take any risk, including injecting monkey urine, says Representative Morgan Griffith. Apparently that's an actual cure. If that meant I could uh, spend a few more days, months, or years with my children. Well, patients can already apply to the FBI's expanded drug access program. Of the nearly 5,800 requests the FDA received in 2012 through 2015, The agency approved 99% of them, according to the Government Accountability Office. Now, the question is the timing and under what circumstance. The most common reasons requested were denied, uh, including incomplete applications, safety concerns, the availability of adequate alternative therapies, and evidence that the drug was ineffective for the intended use, according to the GAO. The Goldwater Institute, a conservative think tank based in Phoenix that has pushed for the right to try legislation at the state and federal level, discounts that statistics. Charlie Cole or Starley Coleman, Goldwater Institute senior policy advisor, says doctors only apply to the program if they've given an informal indication uh, from the FDA that their patient would qualify. So those who are believed to be outside of whatever those parameters are don't bother to apply, giving a false sense that anyone who wants one can essentially get one. The House bill would uh, let a patient bypass the FDA's program. Patient advocacy groups, including the American Cancer Society Action Network and the American Lung Association, argue the FDA can make important dosing and other safety improvements to the administration of the medication. FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb has said the biggest obstacle to patients getting experimental medication is drug availability. Drug makers have... um may have only a limited quantity of a drug, may not have enough resources to administer expanded access requests, or may worry that offering the drug would make it harder to recruit participants for the clinical trials necessary to get FDA approval for their products. Jordan uh, uh, Candler uh, points out that it's a a healthy uh, decision that's long overdue, making the point that when it comes to medicinal decisions, the last thing anybody wants or needs is unnecessary bureaucratic obstacles. That's not to say that some regulation isn't necessary, but like any government agency, the FDA has its shortcomings, including hindering the accessibility to promising medications. Fortunately, she points out, Congress sits on the precipice of positively changing the process of experimenting with non-FDA recognized drugs. It's all contingent on the House making it happen. But again, there are two um, versions, the Senate having already passed a version. According to the Wall Street Journal, a right to try bill sponsored by Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson passed the Senate last year. The bill essentially says government will not get in the way of a patient with a life-threatening disease who wants to try a, a flyer on a treatment not approved by the Food and Drug Administration. The drug must have cleared a phase of FDA trials for safety, but not efficacy. The bill's limbo in the House is uh, rather peculiar. It was thought uh, back in February it has now passed, and reconciling the two is the challenge moving forward.
Mark Anthony Condit, the man linked to the deadly bombings that rocked Austin, Texas and surrounding areas over the past month, recorded a 25 minute long confession to his crimes, police said late yesterday. Officers located the recording in which Condit 23 described creating seven devices, including one he blew up during the conflict with police. Um, The recording was made on a phone, which was found in the suspect's possession following the confrontation. He described the bombs with a level of specificity, including uh, their differences. Um, In the recording, the suspect did not mention anything about terrorism, nor does he mention anything about hate. The police chief said the message is rather an outcry of a very challenged young man talking about challenging challenges rather in his personal life. Police said all seven devices have been found, suggesting there's no further threat from Condit uh, to people in the area. The community should still remain vigilant, however. And they said that they found something of a target list and again, using very special uh, unique batteries purchased from Asia, uh, making it a bit more of a challenge to uh, to identify uh, how these things were assembled. Meanwhile, dozens of uh, surveillance videos of Las Vegas shooter Stephen Paddock wheeling around luggage stocked with weapons and ammunition were released by MGM Resorts uh, today with lingering questions about the motive of the attack. The 32 clips show uh, Paddock interacting with um, Mandalay Bay staff, playing the casino's gaming tables, transporting suitcases, in fact, suitcase after suitcase to his 32nd floor suite, where he proceeded to gun down 58 people on the 1st of October in what is considered to be the worst mass shooting in modern American history. Yet we know really very little about of the details surrounding that event and preceding it. Stephen Paddock gave no indication of what he planned to do and his interactions with staff and overall behavior were all normal. MGM spokesman Debbie DeShong said in a statement obtained by uh, media, our focus continues to be on supporting victims and their families, our guests and employees, and cooperating with law enforcement with their ongoing investigation. The statement also described Paddock as a longtime guest with no known history of threats or violence and behaving in any manner that appeared outwardly normal or abnormal. It was not immediately clear, however, if hotel staff ever questioned why a single guest at the resort at the Las Vegas Strip would need so many pieces of luggage for his stay. In all, Paddock brought in 21 bags over a period of about a week, and I imagine they were spaced out. He perhaps took different routes. Different people saw them, according to the New York Times, which obtained the surveillance tapes now made public. Uh, In one clip, Paddock waits for two people with inflatable pool toys to exit the elevator before entering it. Other footage shows him uh, uh, driving away and returning to the resort. The motive for the horrific attack is still unknown, but could be revealed within the next seven months, we're told. The chief of the FBI Las Vegas office said in December that the agency probably wouldn't uh, brief the public until their uh, report is released sometime before the tragedy's first anniversary. Now, that's a long time for some people, but speaking for the FBI, that's light speed, all right. Uh, that's a quote from special agent in charge, Aaron Roos. Uh, Roos said reports from other agencies investigating the mass shooting will be released at different times, but the FD- FBI uh, is focusing a large part on the why, which is what everybody wants to know. What was the motive behind uh, this recent attack? We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, we'll talk about the uh, movie that's uh, opening in theaters tomorrow, Paul, Apostle of Christ. We're planning on reviewing that. We'll tell you more about it uh, shortly. And also the movie Samson has been out for some time. It's now playing. I'm not hearing a lot of uh, buzz about it or big numbers, but it's another of those uh, so-called faith-based films. I suspect the storyline fits the uh, popular genre of superheroes. In fact, in the 
um, uh, the promotions for it. Uh, Samson is referred to as uh, being something of a superhero with superhuman strength. And one wonders if the biblical message uh, is lost in all of that. Anyway, we'll talk more about that and what we can expect weather-wise here in the area as uh, spring is now in full swing, despite what they're saying is likely to come uh, starting tonight and through the weekend. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, tomorrow, Paul, Apostle of Christ, is opening in theaters, and James and I are planning to go to an early showing and review the movie. It's the story of two men, really. It's about uh, Luke, a friend of, uh, and a physician. He risks his life when he ventures into the city of Rome to visit the Apostle Paul, who's held captive in Nero's darkest, bleakest prison cell. But Nero's determined to rid Rome of Christians, doesn't uh, flinch from executing them in the grisliest ways possible, and before Paul's death sentence can be enacted. Luke resolves to write another book, one that details the beginnings of the way and the birth of what uh, will come to be known as the church. Paul, in the early part of the movie, is bound in chains. He's chains, rather. He's, his uh, struggles are internal. He has uh, survived uh, floggings, shipwrecks, starvation, stoning, hunger, thirst, cold, and exposure. Yet, as he waits for his appointment with death, he's haunted by the shadows of his past misdeeds. Of course, Paul. Uh, once being Saul, was a persecutor of the church until his encounter with Christ. But there in the cell, he is alone in the dark. He wonders if he has uh, been forgotten and if he has the strength to finish well. And that is essentially the setting of the movie, Paul, Apostle of Christ. The two men, they struggle against a determined emperor and the frailties of the human spirit in order to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ and spread their message, spread his message to the world. Well, the movie is about an hour and 46 minutes long. Um, the director is Andrew Hyatt. It was about a $5 million budget. And uh, we're going we're gonna to see the film. It's uh, produced by Affirm Films. Uh, Outside the Box is the other uh, production company. And anyway, that opens in theaters tomorrow. We're going to take a look and see if it's true to Scripture. I've uh, spoken with some people that had the opportunity to see it in preview, uh, but... Uh, haven't seen a, a reliable review of it thus far. Now, you might recall when the movie Noah came out, we ventured to the theater to take a look uh, and offer something of a review and uh, to say that it, it had to be um, Noah Horowitz because it certainly was not the Noah that you hear, that you read about in Scripture. This was an entirely different character with similar events, but were barely recognizable from Scripture. It was a grave disappointment. And quite frankly, I was pretty frustrated and mad through the whole movie uh, watching it unfold, wondering where on earth did they get that idea? Well, you know how that goes. Uh, Paul the Apostle um, features uh, Jim Caviezel as the uh, Apostle Luke. Uh, I tend to think if he's in the film, it's probably a bit more um, uh, trustworthy, but we'll see what uh, what actually happens. So we're going to go see that movie and we'll give you something of a re- review tomorrow on the program. So I'm looking forward to that. Also, the um, the movie Samson is now playing in theaters. It's based, of course, on the powerful biblical epic of a champion that was chosen by God to deliver Israel. Uh, he was um, somewhat unreliable, as you might uh, recall. His supernatural strength and impulsive decision quickly pit him against the oppressive Philistine Empire. And after being betrayed by a, a prince and the beautiful temptress, Samson is uh, captured, blinded by his enemies. He calls upon his God once more for supernatural strength, turns imprisonment and blindness into final victory when God restores what had been taken 
uh, by uh, the woman that he had given himself to. Now, I haven't heard a whole lot about this movie. I wasn't particularly interested. But in an era where superheroes are the thing, it's not at all surprising that someone would decide to make a movie of Samson. Now, my guess is they sort of missed the major point, And it's a sensational story about a really strong guy with long hair and big muscles uh, who loses his strength, is blinded, and it's all restored without getting at the key points of the story from Scripture. But nonetheless, that's currently out. And of course, I can only imagine has done much better at the box office than expected. Now, as I mentioned, I think it was yesterday, Easter weekend is typically a good time for faith-based movies. And so um, Samson may be doing better than uh, than thought. Uh, Paul, Apostle of Christ, may do better than anticipated. And certainly, I can only imagine, has done better than uh, most folks thought was uh, even possible. So we're going to take a look at that and we'll let you know tomorrow if, in fact, it's a reflection of what the scripture teaches or uh, something that departs rather dramatically from the truth of those historic events. Meanwhile, we have celebrated the start of spring, but you wouldn't necessarily know it if you uh, looked outside, at least over the last couple of days. We're now being told that slow, snow levels rather could drop to 1,500 feet by um, this evening and 1,000 feet by Friday. This is in the early days of spring. Well, winter is making something of a brief comeback here in the Portland area this weekend. A winter weather advisory has been issued for most of northwest Oregon and southwest Washington through Friday night. There's a cold front. It's going to move through the Portland area early um, this uh, this evening, according to KGW's meteorologist Rod Hill, and that's going to bring snow levels down to 1,500 feet by early Thursday evening and 1,000 feet uh, on Friday. Sticking snow is possible on Friday, so despite the fact that uh, it's springtime. Snow could still not only fall, but stick. The falling snow levels are going to set the table for uh, winter driving conditions over the coast range and the Cascades. Drivers to check uh, conditions, be prepared for snow um, covered highways. So keep that in mind. Overnight and early morning showers uh, may even provide grassy uh, dustings of snow at the lower elevations as well. The strongest showers could develop uh, today through Saturday with small hail or thunderstorms. Mount Hood Resorts will get several days of fresh powder for the weekend. The winter weather should start to dry up on Sunday with warmer temperatures into the 60s returning for spring break next week, which is uh, pretty good news. And of course, uh, passion of the Christ, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday coming up uh, to finish out Holy Week. So looking forward to that. Now, as you uh, probably have noticed, we've been featuring here on the program a number of local Christian schools, all the way from Salem to southwest Washington and Vancouver, giving you a glimpse into some of the fine uh, opportunities that we have in our community for private Christian education. We're going to continue that into next week, and I want to encourage those of you who are thinking about sending a son, daughter, grandson, daughter, niece or nephew, uh, this is a great time to check out some tuition discounts. Now, we've had a number of schools offering those discounts. We have a few of them left. So you can go to listenersavings.com for more information. But we would love for you to take advantage of the opportunity to enjoy some additional savings. And in fact, there's a, at least one new school that's up on that uh, that tally. So check that out uh, for these um, uh, discounts of up to 40%.
We'll continue those interviews into next week, so you'll have an opportunity to learn more. Also, the Booth Brothers are coming to town this Saturday, the trio known for their harmony-drenched vocals and warm, easy voices. They're coming for an exciting musical event. That's this Saturday, 5 p.m. at Vancouver uh, First Church of God. For more information and to purchase your tickets, you can go to the place where, well, you should always go, kpdq.com. You can also call 360-883-9342. Mark your calendars for a night of Southern Gospel Music with the Booth Brothers this Saturday. Tickets and information, again, available at kpdq.com or call 360-883-9343. And if you've been thinking about joining joining us uh, to hear uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman in his solo concert, it's going to be an amazing evening. Uh, tickets are going very fast, so let me remind you that this is a good time to purchase those tickets. You can join 93.9 KPDQ on uh, Thursday, April the 26th, for an amazing evening with one of Christian music's most enduring artists, Stephen Curtis Chapman. We invite you to an evening with a man, his guitar, and his stories, all of which are uh, worth going to uh, to hear. Stephen will take you on uh, to the very heart of the stories behind his biggest hits. Even if you've seen him before, uh, you're going to um, find him as you've never seen him uh, like this. Make plans to join us now. Stephen Curtis Chapman solo at East Hill Church in Gresham, 7 o'clock p.m., Thursday, April 26th. And as I mentioned, tickets are going fast. So let me encourage you to uh, check that out. Go to kpdq.com for all the important details. Finally, if you've had Israel on your bucket list, there's an opportunity for you to enjoy Anthony Evans and Meredith Andrews. Uh, as they provide the music and teaching Pastor Tony Evans and his wife Lois uh, this coming November for Experience Israel 2018. Imagine standing in the Sea of Galilee, exploring the remains of Nazareth, visiting Jerusalem, where every stone pathway leads you toward the life of Christ and the story of God's purpose on earth. It is unlike anything you've ever done. There'll be uh, gifted musical guests, as I mentioned, Anthony Evans and Meredith Andrews. Your time in Israel is sure to be rich with spiritual meaning and impact. And for all the important details, again, go to kpdq.com. You can book uh, your journey to Israel today and find out all the details. Call 855-448-7226. That's 855-448-7226 to book your journey. All right, tomorrow we're going to lighten things up. We'll give a review of uh, Paul, Apostle of Christ, but also take a look at the lighter side of the news. I hope you can join us. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G-Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.